can the desire to return to the warmth and security of home at the moment of a crisis persist long past the moment of death? This is Mark Lyon. Welcome to the Other Realm. Throughout my life, I have collected true accounts left to us by those who have inadvertently crossed the invisible threshold from our world into the realm of the supernatural and returned to tell the tale. These are their stories. The rain poured relentlessly, obscuring their vision and making driving hazardous, as Sam Kearns and his companion carefully drove down San Francisco's Mission Street, returning home from a party late one night. As they approached First Street, Kearns gradually perceived the faint form of a young woman standing alone on the corner, as if waiting for someone. Drawing closer, they were surprised to find that she was dressed only in a thin white evening gown and had neither a coat nor umbrella. Yet she seemed oblivious to the weather. Thinking she might be in trouble, Kearns pulled up to the curb and asked if they might give her a ride home. Yes, thank you very much, she answered, and the men quickly helped her into the back seat of their coupe. As she was obviously cold and wet, Kearns wrapped a car blanket around her. She volunteered an address near Twin Peaks, where she said she lived with her mother, but offered no explanation as to how she had become stranded. And although she answered politely when spoken to, it was clear that her mind was on something else, and she remained otherwise strangely silent. As they passed Fifth Street, Kern's companion turned around for a moment to make certain she was all right. To his horror, the back seat was empty. Thinking she might have fainted, he quickly leaned over the seat, only to find the damp and discarded blanket lying on the floor. Immediately, he told Kearns to pull over, and they attempted to sort out an explanation. They had both seen and spoken with the girl, and yet she had disappeared without a trace. They had not made any stops, and even if they had, as their car had only two doors, it would have been impossible for her to have left the car without their having known it. There was only one way to discover an answer, and they began searching out the address given by their mysterious passenger. They soon found the place, and despite the late hour, a pale light shone from within the sadly neglected house. Hesitantly, they knocked on the front door. It was some time before the sounds of footsteps were heard from within. The two men waited expectantly, wondering what they would say. At last the door opened to reveal a fragile, elderly woman huddled beneath the shawl. Kearns felt uncomfortable as he started to explain the reason for their visit, 
but the old woman seemed to understand and sympathetically placed her hand upon his. Yes, I know, she gently interrupted. You needn't continue. It has happened before. That was my daughter. She was killed in an automobile accident two years ago at the corner of First and Mission. She has often tried to return home. If this story sounds familiar, there's a very good reason for its familiarity. Similar accounts of vanishing hitchhikers have been told for centuries throughout the world. The phantom hitchhiker has been encountered by solitary walkers, conveyed on horseback, ridden in farm wagons and carriages, and been driven in all manner of automobiles. Although she is most often a woman dressed in party or evening clothes, the hitchhiker in many instances is a man. The vanishing hitchhiker is usually encountered either at the site of her death or at the gates of the cemetery in which she was buried, and sometimes the story becomes darker when on a cold or rainy night the driver offers the lady his coat or sweater. The garment disappears along with the hitchhiker, only to be found later, carefully draped over her tombstone. As a result, tales of the ghostly hitchhiker are often dismissed as nothing more than legends said to have occurred to a friend of a friend and transplanted from place to place and given the ring of authenticity through the insertion of local place names. But while this may indeed often be the case, is it not possible that the proliferation of similar tales might be the result of the simple fact that the desire to return home at the moment of a fatal accident or other such crisis is so strong and so universal that it could produce ghosts who behave in a similar fashion throughout the ages and in every culture. Is it not possible that the plethora of vanishing hitchhiker tales has been the result not of the mere repetition of an age-old legend, but instead what might rationally be expected from the repetition of such crises throughout time and in every imaginable place, coupled with the natural human desire to escape from the trauma of such experiences to a place of safety and warmth. The evidence would suggest that this might well be the case. While in most instances it proves impossible to track down the identity of those who have actually encountered the vanishing hitchhiker, on occasion, credible witnesses have been identified, witnesses who have recorded their experience for the record. No less august a personage than John McLaren, 
the man who developed San Francisco's Golden Gate Park and served as its superintendent for 53 years, along with others, reported encountering a melancholy young woman dressed in purple standing at dusk by the main park drive near Mark's Meadow waiting to be offered a ride home, only to vanish as night falls or upon reaching the park entrance. And then there are the numerous more recent and verifiable encounters collected by researchers in England. Consider the case of the British guitarist and vocalist Richard Studholm, who, while driving through an area in Kent known as Bluebell Hill, stopped to give a ride to a girl who asked to be taken to West Kingsdown. After putting her suitcase into the car, off they went. Although she was far from talkative, she asked Mr. Studholm if he might give a message to her parents, who resided not far from London, in the town of Swanley. After dropping her off in West Kingsdown, the musician called upon her parents as requested, only to learn from the grieving parents that their daughter had been killed two years earlier at the very place at which he had encountered her standing by the roadside. When the paranormal researcher Michael Goss interviewed a close friend of the guitarist, he was told he's not the sort of person to make up something like that. And then there is the experience reported at the time to the Dunstable Bedfordshire Police and recorded in the Dunstable Gazette of Roy Fulton, a young man who one evening after a darts match in Leighton Buzzard was driving through the nearby village of Stanbridge when on a road called Petter's Lane, he saw a man wearing a white shirt, a dark-colored sweater, and dark trousers holding out his thumb, gesturing for a ride. Mr. Fulton pulled off to the side of the road. The hitchhiker, whose face seemed strangely pale, opened the car door for himself and sat down beside him. When Mr. Fulton asked where the man was going, the passenger merely pointed in the direction of the road, not saying a single word. When a few minutes later the driver turned to offer the man a cigarette, as he later put it, the bloke had disappeared. I braked, had a quick look in the back to see if he was there. He wasn't and I just gripped the wheel and drove like hell. The account has been backed by a woman who observed Roy Fulton's agitation following the event. I was in the glider that evening, she later wrote. I remember Roy coming in, totally and very visibly shaken, and shaking, more than just a story. This was a real event. But perhaps most intriguing of all 
is a 10-mile portion of road on the A38 in the area of the market town of Wellington in Somerset, which has long been known to be haunted at night by a middle-aged man wearing a long gray overcoat, or Macintosh, who stands in the middle of the roadway, flashlight in hand, attempting to gain the attention of passing motorists a haunting which gained notoriety when new sightings were carefully reported in 1970 by the Western Morning News. According to the article in the Morning News, a Mrs. K. Swithenbank was driving the A38 towards Taunton when, while rounding a bend, the man appeared without warning in the middle of the road near the Heatherton Grange Hotel. Unable to apply her brakes in time, she immediately swerved her car and almost ended up in a ditch. She was relieved to neither feel nor observe anything suggesting that the man had been hit, and after braking, she got out of her car intending to admonish the man for being so foolish as to stand in the middle of the road. Amazingly, the man seemed to have vanished. She carefully scanned the area. There was no one to be seen either behind, alongside, or in front of her. Two other motorists reported having exactly the same experience in exactly the same place. Another motorist reported seeing the man in the Macintosh four miles down the road at the village of Whiteball. A motorcyclist riding through Whiteball, however, was not as fortunate as the others. Having swerved to avoid the man in the Macintosh, the rider was thrown from his motorcycle and sustained a broken limb. On another occasion, the Phantom was seen by four members of a pop music group at the same time. We had an engagement up Nottingham Way and were driving home, one of the witnesses told the morning news. The two men in the front and the two girls in the back. We'd heard the story of the ghost being seen only a week or two before, and as we approached the stretch of road where it was seen, we were talking about it and saying we were getting close to the spot. All of a sudden, the driver said, Look, there it is. We all saw it, all four of us, a man standing right in the road and looking toward us with an arm outstretched. I said, Don't stop. Drive on fast. We must have driven right through him. The reports of all these incidents compelled Harold Unsworth a long-haul truck driver from the city of Exeter, to relate in a letter to the Exeter Express and Echo a series of encounters which he had quite reasonably kept secret for twelve years. He had been driving the A-38 when around three in the morning, about a mile west of Hatherton Grange, he observed a hatless man with long, curly gray hair wearing a gray or cream-colored Macintosh, and carrying a flashlight, standing out in the pouring rain. Seeing that the man was soaking wet 
and feeling sorry for him, Unsworth stopped and offered the man a ride. The man asked to be driven about four miles down the road to the Beam Bridge at Holcomb. Although the man's speech suggested a good education, Mr. Unsworth was more than a bit unnerved by his guest's desire to recount a series of gruesome accidents which had occurred near the bridge during a one-week period of time, giving, with what seemed to be ghoulish enthusiasm, all of the gory details. A few nights later, around 3 a.m., Mr. Unsworth again saw the same man dressed in exactly the same manner, standing in the same place he had encountered him before, again standing in the rain, flashlight in hand. Again, Mr. Unsworth offered the man a ride, and again the man in the Macintosh asked to be let off at the old bridge, and again his conversation consisted of a recitation of horrific accidents near the old bridge. Late one night, a month later, again around 3 a.m., Mr. Unsworth came upon the man again dressed as before, standing in the rain, his flashlight at the ready. Again he asked to be dropped off at the bridge, and again the man's conversation concerned all the unpleasant details of fatal accidents which had taken place in the vicinity of the bridge. Much to his great relief, Mr. Unsworth was not to encounter the man on his nightly runs for several months. Then, one night in November of 1958, he again saw the man standing in his accustomed place by the A-38. Again, he dropped the man off at the bridge, but on this occasion his strange passenger asked if Mr. Unsworth might wait for him to pick up what he referred to as cases and then take him further down the A-38 to another place where he wished to be dropped off. Mr. Unsworth agreed to do so, but when, after waiting twenty minutes, the man had failed to return to his truck, Mr. Unsworth decided to continue on without him. Then, some three miles on by Morgan's Transport Café, Mr. Unsworth told the newspaper, he saw a figure in his headlights waving a flashlight. I thought it was a motorist in trouble, he explained, but to my astonishment, it was this man. He was shaking his fist at me. No other vehicles had passed by to give him a lift to that point. I tried to drive past him, hardly daring to look, but he leapt right in front of my lorry. I braked hard, jackknifed slightly, and stopped. I jumped out and ran back to see what had happened. He stood still in the road again, shaking his fist and cursing me for not having waited for him. He then just turned his back and instantly vanished. My hair stood on end, and I ran back to the lorry and drove off as fast as I could.
The Other Realm is a production of Wind Whistle Theatre. Our music was composed by Dan Heflin. Support for The Other Realm has been provided by HauntedIsles.com, offering private and small group tours of haunted Britain and Ireland, and by Wind Whistle Press, publishers of everything you ever wanted to know about ghosts but were afraid to ask, by Mark Lyon, and San Francisco Ghosts, by Mark Lyon, and Jesse Adelaide Middleton's classic trilogy of true tales of the supernatural, The White Ghost Book, The Grey Ghost Book, and its sequel, Another Grey Ghost Book, and Lep Castle, The House of Horrors, by Mildred Darby, and by Heftone Studios, producers of Phantoms of the Holbrook, a docudrama relating true events occurring at what well may be the most haunted hotel in the entire world, and Natalie, a modern retelling of the German legend of the Lorelei.